Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. There's a song in my head Oh, a line that never stops playing I'm not sure how it ends I can't remember when I heard you were saying I want you to kind of pay attention a little bit, or I mean, if, if you feel like it, pay attention to some of the songs that we use on today's show, which is an all-call show. You know, the way she says that, though, I don't want to be forgotten. I don't want to pretend that it's all right. I want to see these walls crumble and dissolve around me. It seems very apt for the two things that I want to talk about today. Uh, one of them is Simone Biles, and the other one uh, is the four men who testified to the House Select Committee earlier this week. And I think there are linkages. I don't think I'm forcing the linkages uh, between the two of them. And one of the linkages, well, I'll get to what I think are the main linkages, but you know that pretending that it's all right thing uh, that we do a lot, I think, especially in this country. Uh, in fact, um, writing about uh, the idea of burnout uh, in, uh, uh, in a book, in, uh, the Korean-born Berlin-based philosopher Byung-Chul Han writes that every age has its signature afflictions. Uh, and, and for him, uh, it's uh, burnout, the sickness of a society that suffers from excessive positivity, an achievement society, a yes-we-can world in which nothing is impossible, a world that requires people to strive to the point of self-destruction. It reflects a humanity waging war on itself. I think we kind of saw that in both of these stories uh, this week. I'm going to sort of put this idea out and then ask you, invite you to call in. The number, by the way, is 888-720-WNPR. I mean, you've got Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast in the history of the sport, according to people who know more about this than I do, uh, dropping out of key Olympics events. But if you paid attention going into the Olympics, you knew that the chances of something like this were very high. In several interviews, but especially I think the one with the New York Times' Juliet Maser, Biles described herself as wounded, burned, and yeah, burned out, not just from the enormous pressures of her role, but by the failures of the people who run her sport to protect her and others from a sexual predator. I mean, she is the only known gymnast in these 2020 or 2021 Olympics 
uh, to be competing after having been sexually preyed upon uh, by Nassar. Uh, and we also saw those four men, those um, those Capitol Police and D.C. Police, uh, talk, talking to the House Committee on Tuesday about the trauma of, A, trying to defend the U.S. Capitol on January 6th in these incredibly violent circumstances, incredibly dangerous circumstances, but also their sense of betrayal. First, when the system that should have delivered help to them in a timely fashion didn't do it for whatever reasons. And then when they witnessed this political effort to somehow or other minimize this nightmare that they've been through. Um, and, and I think, you know, in each case, too, we, there's a lot of people who don't want to hear the message. I mean, even watching NBC's coverage of Simone Biles uh, as they cover the Olympics, I'm struck by how often they and other organs of the press kind of they don't bring up that that's the sexual abuse part of it. They say that maybe they say she's burned out. Maybe they say she's got a headspace problem, a mental health problem. And that puts it on a par with like Naomi Osaka or, you know, Michael Phelps. Um, but this is different. I mean, I really do think that this is substantially different. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's different because of the sexual abuse component. But they don't want to talk about that. I mean, going into these Olympics, Biles did talk about it. It's in the Macer profile in particular. She talks about the fact that, you know, she's willing to go in there and try to compete um, on behalf of uh, other young women of color, uh, brown and black women who want to be, want to excel as athletes. Uh, there, and she's willing to compete on behalf of her country, but not on behalf of USA Gymnastics, the governing and organizing body uh, that that runs her sport, uh, because she, like so many other gymnasts, these you know two hundred or so gymnasts uh, who were abused over such a long period by Dr. Nassar, you know she feels as though she was never properly taken care of uh, by you know by this organization, so. Um, so you sort of wonder why it is we're not not only are we looking at her and we're watching her and 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 you know, there are some competing narratives including you know people went right to Carrie Strug and said oh well she was able to function you know <laughs> well yeah she had a leg injury and in fact her story has actually gotten kind of different over the years um her story has turned more into somebody who made an unnecessary sacrifice by continuing to compete uh, and, and who also essentially ended her career. I mean, she was no longer the gymnast that she was. Uh, but that's not even the point. The point is it was pretty quickly understood that this was not a simple injury, that it wasn't a simple physical medical problem. And so um, let's hear that first cut, Simone one cat. Uh, Here's Simone Biles herself talking about this. No injury, thankfully, and that's why I took a step back because I didn't want to do something silly out there and get injured, so I thought it was best if these girls took over and did the rest of the job, which they absolutely did. They're Olympic silver medalists now, and they should be really proud of themselves for how well they did last minute having to go in. Um, and it's been really stressful, this Olympic Games, I think, just as a whole, um, not having an audience. There are a lot of different variables going into it. It's been a long week. It's been a long Olympic process. It's been a long year. Um, so just a lot of different variables, and I think we're just a little bit too stressed out. Um, but we should be out here having fun, and sometimes that's not the case. 
So I also want to know what you made of this whole thing, made uh, and, and whether you think maybe it might even change perceptions within sports. Uh, but I also want to think about I also want you to talk about how you think we, my profession, covered this story. And then we'll move on or what we can add uh, the four officers uh, who testified to the House Select Committee on Tuesday. Uh, our number, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888 888- Seven two zero nine six seven seven, and one of the questions I think that sort of comes up here is, are we capable of changing our narratives? Our there isn't really a heroic narrative, uh, I think, embedded in our culture about what Biles did. I mean, basically, first of all, you know, she said before the Olympics that she was going in there, not only on behalf of aspiring black and brown young women athletes, but also on behalf of sexual abuse survivors. She was going to try to compete on their behalf. And, and, and then she ultimately realized that she couldn't. One of the first decisions she made was that she was hurting her team. Uh, she was hurting her team because she just didn't have the kind of concentration uh, that, that it took. And she was, you know, posting, I mean, in that particular event uh, where she lost her focus in the middle of that that twisting flip that she did, uh, I think she posted the lowest score of her team, uh, which is obviously not you know vintage Simone Biles. So one of her decisions, I think, is a decision that we can understand, and and I think most Americans kind of get it. Okay, if I can't help my team, let's turn it over to somebody else who can help my team. Um, but there's more, right? I mean, first of all, there's also that kind of the backstory really is that story of sexual. I mean, think about this. You know? Here's this here's this sport, which the more that you watch it, the more you realize that obviously it's an incredible physical test, but it's also an incredible mental test. I mean, your ability to focus and do those things under tremendous amounts of pressure and, you know, execute the stuff and the stuff that she does, does of course, are things that the gymnastic bodies almost don't want other athletes to try because it would be so easy for them to get hurt doing these things that kind of essentially nobody else can do. Uh, but but here's this sport that requires will and focus and concentration and emotional discipline. And, and then you overlay onto that. I mean, whatever resentments she's feeling, whatever trauma she's feeling, that sense of betrayal, that sense that this governing body to which she essentially has entrusted her young adult life for all these years was not protecting her from, you know, some of the worst kinds of predation. Um, you know, I mean, the, the the idea of being a fairly recent young sexual abuse survivor going into the most high-pressure sports arena anybody can really imagine with the entire world watching uh, and and trying to do this kind of thing um, is, you know, I mean, in, in a way, it's like amazing that she even thought that she could do it. Um, it, it seems, you know, kind of radically difficult. So, you know, do we have kind of the right narrative, though, to talk about that? We, we don't really have, I don't think, in this country, a, a, a narrative about I'm hurt, not physically, I'm hurt psychically, I'm hurt emotionally, I feel morally violated. And I can't go on anymore. You know, there's there's it's just, you know, our our narratives are very much rocky. You know, Uh, you know, go to your corner, gather yourself up, have Mickey cut you or whatever and get back out there uh, and and tough it out there. We don't really necessarily have 
uh, a language for talking about what's happening here. Although I feel like maybe we're I'm watching we're all watching America, a sector of American society develop one. Um, and, and I think that also kind of fits into the, the officers that we heard from on Tuesday. You know, uh, these some of these guys, two of these guys were really big guys. All four of them, I think, looked like very strong, rugged, very brave guys. And there was a lot of crying. You know, there were there was a lot of emotion, even as they read their opening statements and then other moments when they were responding to questions where they were just emotionally thrown, you know. And and I think we all I hope we all kind of accepted why that would be and why that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And and piled on top of that was the emotion of the members of Congress. I mean, you know, Adam Kinslinger could barely get through his first question. I mean, he was he was so emotionally overcome. Uh, it's not what we're used to, you know. I mean, we haven't grown up on cop shows and cop movies where the cops cry a lot. Um, I mean, in fact, historically, there's been a lot more of that. There's been sort of, I mean, in, in, in the Iliad, I mean, they all cry. Ajax cries, Agamemnon, Patroclus. Achilles cries probably more than anybody in the Iliad. You can be big and tough and heroic and fierce and you can cry. That's kind of understood. Uh, But these men whose injuries clearly are, once again, physical injuries, their bodies are beat up, but their minds and their souls are beat up too. And they're trying to tell America about that. Uh, and, and and their bodies and their minds are beat up, A, from the trauma of having been in that situation, having other people, American civilians, trying to kill them in some cases uh, or trying to hurt them very, very badly or gouge their eyes or get their gun and shoot them. Um, and but they all they're also hurt by the betrayal, by all of the efforts to minimize this, to pretend this wasn't one of the most terrible days in the history of America. All right. So people calling in here, our number 888-720-WNPR. Love to hear what you think about this. 888-720-9677. Before I go to Dan in Simsbury, uh, I want to just say that we're doing this in a very unusual way here today. I mean, it's unusual enough to do an all-call show with no guests, but we have sort of split studios here. Kat Pastor and I are up in Hartford. Carmen Baskoff, the whiz kid producer of Where We Live, is down in New Haven screening calls. Katie Tularski, our big boss, is down there too. But I'm confident that this will work. Because what could go wrong, really? What could go wrong? Uh, all right, let's start with uh, Dan in Simsbury, see what he has to say. Hi, Dan. Hey, how's it going? Um, I mean... My personal view on watching uh, the, what the officers had to say, they seemed scripted and reading. I mean, the way they were reading it, none of them were able to speak from the heart. None of them were able to speak from their mind. I mean, my stepfather, or my father-in-law, I apologize, was a Chicago City cop. And I've never seen him act like that. He's been in some really bad situations. And my brother is a cop in Virginia, and he had his back broken working out, out in uh, Jersey, and neither of them, who have been in a lot of bad situations, have even come close to the drama that was coming from these four men. And I'm not saying that they were wrong or uh, they weren't hurt or they – it just seemed they weren't speaking from the heart. They seemed like they were scripted out. You mean you think it says it says you think they have a piece of paper that says have your voice tremble here start to cry here start to I mean what do you mean scripted I mean they, they were they were uh, if, if you saw each one of them sniffled at a at a pretty same point when they were reading so you really, you think they're faking those emotions wow 
I mean, that's that, that's a pretty serious charge against some guys who went through some pretty heavy duty stuff. And you know, as the day went along, I mean, they read opening statements, but then they were they were you know asked a lot of questions, which they responded to spontaneously without access to a script, and they also became emotional. And and it does seem to me, I mean, I don't know what your members of your family went through. This is a pretty unusual thing we're talking about. You know, we're talking about a, a mob of people, thousands strong, uh, who are fellow citizens uh, in this very confined way, attempting to destroy these guys. You know, and it isn't a, a, an exchange of gunfire even that takes place over 90 seconds or two minutes. This goes on for a really long time. And as these guys become more exhausted, as they testify, the, there are sort of replacements being called up um, among the terrorists. The terrorists are sending more more fresh bodies in there to go at them and go at them. They're drastically outnumbered. You know, it's going on for a really long time. Uh, I, I think it is different. I mean, I, I get that cops you get shot at and they shoot back and stuff like that. This isn't like that. This is a thing that went on for, for you know, an extremely long period of time. And I think the trauma would be different, wouldn't you? My brother was beaten down. His back was broken. And he was smashed by 20 people in a, when he was attacked, when he was doing uh, police work in Jersey. And the reason why he moved down to Virginia and he was a backup to the Capitol Police, and he was never called in that day. And there was a lot of things that went wrong that day. And I'm not saying that anybody that stepped in that Capitol, they should go to jail and they should go to jail for a long time. What I'm saying is some of these officers, they sound scripted and unbelievable. Is it possible, I'm going to move on to another caller, but I'm, I would ask you to entertain the possibility that maybe your relative there, your relation there, Maybe he kind of didn't have access to his set of emotions about this, you know, because that sounds what you just described to me sounds pretty traumatic. It, it seems to me like the pathology would be more with the person who was acting like this wasn't an emotional wound, wasn't an enduring trauma. You know, when you do that, it comes out in other ways. People wind up, you know, drinking or abusing drugs or having violent outbursts or, you know, I mean, it, it seems to me that what's what would be kind of normative to the extreme, that, to whatever extent that we can all be talked about in the same terms, would be to be traumatized by this. Uh, and and to, to act as though it wasn't a trauma seems to me like stuffing it down. That, to me, seems like the artificial response and maybe the unhealthy one. Um, all right. So here's Mary in Hamden. Hi, Mary. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Colin. How are you? Just fine. You sound good, as <laughs> usual. Okay. So what have you got for me? So, Well, Colin, a couple of things. Um, I was very interested in what your previous caller said about, um, about the January 6th insurrection. And I'm also interested in what uh, Piers Morgan said specifically about Simone Biles um, in that quote that I vaguely remember. He said something about nothing heroic or brave about, about getting um, because you're something about her not having fun. And, and she let down her teammates um, and, her, and her country. And it seems to me that this is a kind of criticism that's often levied against um, minority athletes. I mean, I'm even thinking back to the soccer match um, when the English team was, um, when the three English um, kickers didn't uh, make their goals and the kind of um, um, lashback that they got, that's not the right word, but the kind of um, remarks that were made about them. And this 
is the kind of thing that happens over and over again. If blacks are winning, if they are excelling, if they're doing what their white um, masters want them to do and winning them lots of money, you know, they have a certain kind of support. But once they become less enslaved and think and speak for themselves, then the game changes. And this trope is always trotted out. The ones that say, oh, you're just not good enough or you don't meet our standards and um, things like that to discredit them. And this happens over and over again. They refuse to give athletes their humanity, like they refuse to give certain kinds of people throughout the world their humanity. And um, they just want to dig away at one psyche. And that's especially, um, that happened, that's happened to Simone. It's happened to Naomi. It's happened to uh, Serena Williams. It's happened to lots and lots of, of powerful, intelligent, intelligent young athletes who have the who have the wherewithal to step away and to stand up for themselves and for more importantly what's right. And as far as those brave police officers, and I hate to use the word heroic, it's way overused in my opinion, and that's just my opinion. But they were doing their job and they went through an incredible amount of um trauma. I mean can you imagine having someone going at you with a cattle prod? Think about what that does to a cow or to a bull, Mm -hmm. to a horse. What does that do to an individual? And again, um, it's not the same as as if they were meeting mild or peaceful protesters. This was an angry, raucous, belligerent, um, irrational crowd of individuals who were destroying not just property, but trying to destroy people. And when you think that they were faced with their own citizens, people of this country, going at them like that, that in itself must have been so unexpected and so traumatic. And it's not the same. And I do appreciate that young man's point of view about all the injuries that some policemen have gone through. But let's face it, this is not the expectation for your capital, the center of your government, the center of the United, bloody, bloody, bloody United States. Right. And I think also it's worth noting that, uh, I mean, another difference between those two incidents would be, in fact, one of the things that these men were very powerfully reacting to was uh, this chorus of very powerful people on one political side of the aisle minimizing this whole thing. I mean, imagine that 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 fellow's father-in-law or stepfather, whatever he was, you know, at the end of all this, there was a, a pretty large, you know, chorus of, of people holding positions of power saying, oh, that didn't really happen. That, nobody really got hurt that badly there. That wasn't even those people who, you know, who, who hurt that man, that police officer so badly. They weren't doing anything bad. They were nice people. They were good people. I mean, imagine what that does to your psyche as well. All right, so we get some really interesting calls here. I guess I'm going to try to get Dana on here, and then we're going to go to a break, and then we can take more of your phone calls, Jeff from Rocky Hill and other people. After the break, the number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Let's go to Dana in Bridgewater. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Hi. So what I have to say is, um, someone just said this to me, we are in the midst of a great unlearning. Mm. And what I want to say about Simone Biles is, as, 
and my own, I am myself a survivor of incest and being molested by a physician 50 mm. years ago. Mm. So it's a different era. And I would like to take us out of the pathology paradigm and put us into a paradigm of power. And that Simone Biles, by doing what she did, took her power in the only way that was really open to her after everything that's happened to tell the committee, the gymnastics people that were running her life, basically, that she was trying to separate from, to, to, um, to show them that she would no longer be a part of their paradigm. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a power move, and I applaud her. I, I agree with everything that you just said, although I, I do deplore the fact that, for the most part, this conversation isn't being had uh, in the mainstream conversations about this. I mean, this is, I mean, not not only by, you know, I mean, I don't even know why Piers Morgan even exists or why anybody would ever pay attention to him. He just seems like the kind of person who starts a cycle. He says something really horrible, and then people on CNN attack him, and it just sort of keeps going. But I, I mean, but but that, that conversation, the conversation I'm hearing in this country, yeah, some of the people are saying stuff like what you're saying, but an awful lot of people are just kind of skating past this whole sexual abuse issue because we we don't want that to be the story of the Olympics, right? We don't want that to be an important story of the Olympics. Uh, I think there's a lot of an, a lot of attempts to paper over that because this is much more of a kind of supposedly feel-good event about athletes, you know, achieving their, their finest hours. Uh, we don't want to talk about the stuff that you're talking about right now, and I think that's a shame. I, I think to whatever degree this hasn't been the conversation, that's kind of a tragedy. Anyway, i got to go to a break here. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble here otherwise. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. The number 888-720-WNPR. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we are back. Uh, this is uh, something we're doing about once a week right now. 
We're doing it for a couple of different reasons. I think one reason for doing it, well, one I'll acknowledge the, the logistical reason for doing it, which is that we are in the process of hiring a new senior producer. We don't have that person yet, uh, which means that uh, despite the uh, heroic, we're not supposed to use that word, but despite the the significant efforts uh, of, uh, of the people who've been working on this show, Jonathan McPants uh, and uh, freelance celebrity producer Lily Tyson, I just can't get as many shows on the air here. And one way I can get a show on the air if a lot of other people are willing to help me as they are doing today, is to do all calls and no guests. So that's one reason we're doing it. But I think the other reason is these shows are a lot less predictable. Like, I don't know what's going to happen on them. I don't know who's going to call up, and I don't know what they're going to say. And I don't know what I'm going to say in response to what they say. Uh, and I think that could be really good in public radio. So anyway, uh, the number, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Uh, we're talking about, or I'm asking you to talk about, this week in which we've sort of seen people react to significant kinds of betrayal and, and what they have done, whether their names are Simone Biles uh, or, or any of the four men who testified to the House Select Committee on Tuesday, um, you know, what that does to them, what betrayal does to us. Uh, and I mean, there are other parts of this narrative to get into as well. So uh, let's see. Well, Jeff from Rocky Hill has been waiting for a long time. So uh, yeah, Jeff, what have you got to say? Hi, uh, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a granddaughter who is uh, still in high school, but she's a level 10 gymnast, which is college level. Uh, she's worked her way up starting at about five or six years old from one, two, three, four, five. Uh, her mother has done the same thing, didn't reach the high level that she has. And my other daughter was also a gymnast. And there is stress involved at every single level. Uh, when you're level one and you go to a meet, you're nervous. You throw up before the meet, you cry, you say, I don't want to do it. Uh, two, three, four, five, as you progress, you're doing better and better and better. If you are claimed to be the best in the world, greatest of all time, um, I think Simone Biles uh, did a great disservice to the country, to her fellow teammates, um, to girls that if she had elected to not go into the Olympics, would have had a spot to go into the Olympics. I think she let down her team. Uh, where they were uh, by far the, the number one, and her teammates were counting on her, and she bailed initially because she... So, Jeff, let me, let, me inter- let me interrupt you and ask you a question. If, God forbid, but if, God forbid, your daughter or granddaughter had wound up down there on that Caroli ranch uh, and was, were sexually molested by the gymnastics team doctors you would still insist that your daughter and granddaughter be held to the highest standards, be not really allowed to in any way let the, let the trauma and the stress of that affect their performance. You would still insist that even this, though those horrible things that happened, these unspeakable things that happened to your daughter and granddaughter, that they should just go out there and suck it up and do their gymnastics? Well, I, my daughter, my granddaughter obviously was not in that, and we don't know, for instance, that Simone Biles was. But Simone Biles is 24 years old. She has to have been doing gymnastics at that level for 20 years. Uh, if she was uh, subject to abuse uh, at Corrales Ranch, which I, I hadn't heard that before, and now it's... Well, um, you, you understand about this guy Nasser, right, who's in prison for the rest of his life? Absolutely, and she also did not go to Michigan State. She wasn't from there, so 
there were a lot of people that were abused. I think that's horrible. I think what Corolla did was not so... I mean, I don't know enough about him other than the fact... Well, if you don't know enough about him, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have the audacity to come on the air and question Simone Biles' story. I mean, this is a story that, I mean, nobody tells this story because it makes up a story like this under the kind of spotlight that she's under for her entire life and tells it because it's fun, you know, or it might be kind of self-aggrandizing to claim I was sexually abused by Nassar. I mean, you know, or her or Ali Raisman or any of these other incredibly elite gymnasts to whom this happened. I mean, it, it's it's offensive for you to say something like that. And it's even more offensive when you say you don't know that much about it. I mean, then really kind of how dare you? Uh, anyway, uh, let's continue. Um, let's uh, let's see. I have to see where I go. Well, so we'll stay with Biles, with Matthew, and then we'll go to Lauren in the Sandusville, Massachusetts after that. Uh, okay. Hi, Matthew. You're on the air. Hi. How's it going? Uh, I have a comment about Simone Biles as well, uh, kind of at odds with that previous uh, message. Uh, you know, I don't like the discourse that's going on about her that, you know, she owes us these things, right? She owes it to her team. She owes it to America to, to participate. Um, and even before Tokyo, I think she did enough. Like she's already the best gymnast. She's already earned us plenty of medals. You know, I, and she suffered quite a bit to get there, obviously. So I don't feel like she owes me or her team anything. They're great gymnasts without her. Right. So I think we're putting an unfair pressure on her, to to do this when I, I don't think she has to. I think she's done plenty. Yeah, well, it's also pretty clear that her team feels the same way, that they... I mean, it's pretty clear that what happened was she thought she could do it. She thought she could do it. And if she could do it, she would be representing the interests of her fellow sexual abuse survivors. She'd be representing a lot of other people that she cares about. She said explicitly she would not be representing USA Gymnastics, which is the body she feels completely betrayed her and her peers. And then it just turned out she couldn't. It was too much. She just she doesn't she didn't have as much of a psychic reserve as she had hoped she would have. She then said said to her teammates, I don't want to hurt this team, uh, you know, at which point they stepped forward. I mean, I don't want to do any spoilers for people who want to watch this tonight, but one of those team members had a pretty amazing day today. Uh, and, you know, I mean, in some ways, this is sort of a good story. This is a good story about somebody who is, I mean, you know, I mean, she's widely acknowledged as the best gymnast who ever lived who, that we can have any kind of recorded memory of anyway. Uh, and obviously we would want to have her supporting, uh, uh, representing the United States, but when she couldn't, she did the right thing. She kind of, she put it back on her team and said, you guys, you guys can do it. Uh, and then she stood there and she cheered for them, even though it must've been a somewhat, um, she must've been somewhat crestfallen about her own inabilities. Uh, but she went right out to the sidelines and she cheered for them and she hugged them and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It seems like. That's kind of what you want an athlete to be and what you want a good teammate to be, too. Uh, all right. Here's Lauren in Sandusville. I think we're switching gears back to Washington. I'm glad we're doing this because I really do think there is a through line. There is a connection between these two stories. I hope I've done something to elucidate that. But anyway, here's Lauren. Hi. Hi. How are you? Just fine. Great. Uh, thanks. Um, I just wanted to say that with those amazing guys, those Capitol policemen testimony testifying we have to remember that these are the navy seal special forces guys they may or may not have saved the entire country that day there were maybe 200 of those guys versus 10 to 15,000 
angry idiot um, you know, to bash their statements in any way, even consider that they weren't serious or that they were scripted. Come on. They're asking questions like, was there anybody in power that had to do with this? Why over four hours did not uh, support come to them? I could have called somebody with a fire from my washing machine or my dryer. I mean, and, and somebody would have come faster than that. Absolutely. They, they absolutely true. Yeah. And, and you, it was interesting to see that they prioritized that, too. One of them said, I think it was Gunnell, but I'm not sure, um, might have been Dunn, said, this is like a hitman. You know, I mean, uh, you've got the hitman and you want to get that person. But you also have to go after the person who hired the hitman. So who's that? And then it was Hodges, I think, who said, you know, I want to know, you've got to find out if anybody in power, any an office holder, if people like that, were they behind this? Did they know about this? I mean, it's just come out today that Mo Brooks, uh, he told a reporter from Slate, he was wearing body armor when he was up there giving his incendiary speech uh, uh, prior to the, the, the sacking of the Capitol. So <laughs> if he's wearing body armor, you kind of think maybe he did know something about this. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, that these... These four men, and they're placeholders, we should say. You know, they're placeholders for a whole group of other people who just put it all on the line that day, you know, who, who put themselves in, in harm's way uh, and who fought hard to save the U.S. Capitol from terrorists. Uh, but, yeah, and now they want to know. I think, understandably, they want to know. You know, and I think they believe it wasn't just those people. It wasn't just some guy with a horn helmet. You know, it wasn't just those people yelling racial expletives and 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 poking at them and hitting them with stuff. Um, there's somebody else behind all this, and who are those people? And and they've got to be made part of the story. And some of them have to have consequences. All right, we're going to take a break. Nancy from Niantic is going to go first when we get back. The number is eight 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 seven two zero. WNPR, that's 888-720-9677. At my gate, I'll always screech you. At my door, you're welcome in. There can be no transgression. Well, as we talk about these uh, heroic competitors, um, the people who who rise above their pain uh, to to either defend the U.S. Capitol or to compete uh, in a high stress situation, I want to give some credit to the uh, the strong and powerful women who surround me today. Uh, and that would start with Kat Pastor, technical producer. She's here in the studio with us. Wizkid Carmen Baskoff uh, is down, I think, in New Haven, screening calls right now. Katie Tularski's the big boss, uh, and she's over seeing this show with special care. So uh, thanks very much. Uh, you guys are my lead, Childs and McCollum uh, right now. Uh, and um, so thanks for thanks for being with me today. I feel very lucky to work with people like you. All right. So we're going to go back to the phones. The number is 888-720-WNPR, uh, 888-720-9677. I said Nancy from Niantic would go first. I meant it. So here's Nancy. Hi. Hi, this is Nancy Lind from Niantic. 
and I'm for Simone Biles. Uh, what I wanted to say is that before, when she was in the pre-trials, she did all 10s. Everything was a 10. As we know, she's been doing it for years. She's doing more dangerous things that has ever been done on earth in gymnastics. What um, broke my heart was that the news commentators on television, when they were interviewing her and talking about her, how she was molested, that was right before she was going to perform. It aired before she was going to perform in the Olympics. Put her in post-traumatic stress, reminded her of reliving it, reminding of her how the Gymnastics Association was not there for her. They were reminding her that they were going to be judging her. I feel uh, that was deplorable. She was adopted, she's black, and she was molested. And that's how they viewed her. This is a 20, young 24-year-old, an amazing human being. And for them to talk about her, that incident, the most traumatic in her life, right before she was going to perform, took away her power, didn't give her power. Right. Although I, I want to just say, I hear you, Nancy. I really do hear you. Although I, I, I sort of feel differently. I think the crime has been more not talking about it. For the most part, from the time that Biles announced her withdrawal from that first event, you know, it's been sort of, well, mental health, you know, it's been headspace, kind of stuff like that. And, and, and kind of a real unwillingness for the most part to talk about the sexual abuse component of it. And Biles hasn't been shy about that in her interview with Hoda Kobe, in her interview with Juliet Maser, uh, in a bunch of interviews leading up to the Olympics. She said, it's going to be about that to a certain degree. It's going to be, A, about the fact that I will be there representing the, the interests uh, of other sexual abuse survivors. And she specifically also said, and I will not be representing the interests of USA Gymnastics. I am no longer competing on their behalf because of that very specific betrayal. So, I mean, I think she wanted that to be understandably and, and very laudably wanted to be that to be part of the narrative there. Uh, and, and to me, because we you know, have this kind of feel-good thing where we still want to be able to be real happy about the Olympics, and we should be happy about, you know, particularly about what these three women uh, on the team, three young women who stepped up uh, and, and, and have taken some of the load off of Biles and have done some pretty amazing things. We should feel good about that. But we should also feel really bad about what happened to hundreds of athletes under the care of USA Gymnastics. And Simone Biles, she wants us to feel bad, rightly so. Uh, I wouldn't back away from that at all. Here's uh, Michael from East Hartford. Hi. Yeah, I just want to comment on, I think the bigger issue that's being missed is uh, this was an outcrying for, for her mental health. And the, the responses that we're getting in sort of not in her favor really dismiss her own concerns about mental health, which is all too common. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're also seeing that in some of the one or two of the comments uh, about the officers at the Capitol, too. I mean, there was the guy, you know, near the top of the show who said he thought they were pre like pretending to cry in their scripted statements because, yeah, nobody, you know, anybody who had endured four hours of continuous violence from their fellow citizens, that wouldn't have any effect on their mental health whatsoever. I mean, again and again, those guys have tried to made, make the same point. Uh, in fact, let's go to uh, Officer Fanon. This is cut four. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, Michael Fanon of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. I had been beaten unconscious and remained so for more than four minutes. 
I know that Jimmy helped to evacuate me from the building and drove me to MedStar Washington Hospital Center, despite suffering significant injuries himself. At the hospital, doctors told me that I had suffered a heart attack, and I was later diagnosed with a concussion, a traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress disorder. As my physical injuries gradually subsided and the adrenaline that had stayed with me for weeks waned, I've been left with the psychological trauma and the emotional anxiety of having survived such a horrific event. And my children continue to deal with the trauma of nearly losing their dad that day. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. All right. And then I'm also going to have us play a, a really quick uh, cut from Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn. It'll set up a call from Chris from Glastonbury uh, really effectively. So, uh, and then this is a very short clip. More than six months later, January 6th still isn't over for me. I've had to avail myself of multiple counseling sessions from the Capitol Police Employee Assistance Program, and I'm now receiving private counseling therapy for the persistent emotional trauma of that day. I've also participated in many peer support programs with fellow law enforcement officers from around the United States. I know so many other officers continue to hurt, both physically and emotionally. So uh, with that in mind, I mean, and, and you know, I've even got another clip here that we could play of Simone Biles saying kind of a, a similar thing, although specifically saying, and I think this is the Hoda Kobe interview, that one of the reasons she came to this Olympics, I mean, she had already proved everything that an athlete could prove physically in her prior two Olympics, was because she wanted change. She wanted, she wanted change in the way that these young athletes are handled. Uh, she wanted change uh, and, and to redress the failure to protect them, uh, and including her, obviously. Uh, and she thought the best way to do that was to come to the Olympics and compete and tell that story in the process. Right. Here's uh, Chris from Glastonbury. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Colin. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Um, I had to call because, one, I, I want to commend you and so many callers who so articulately describe the magnitude of what happened on January 6th, how traumatic it was, and also defending, you know, Simone Biles. And so I am a therapist, and I had to call because uh, people who undergo trauma, uh, if and when they want to discuss it and how it's impacted them, it's very, um, very personal, very unique how they undergo, how they experience the trauma, when they want to come out and discuss it. It's their right. Um, it's all across the board. It, it really hurts my heart when people judge others. Um, when the caller said that the four policemen were um, not being authentic and scripted, number one, you know, they had a speech, so obviously it's written out and they read from it. But they've been speaking for hours during the investigation, before the investigation, putting their neck out, very emotional, very authentic. There's, that was just very insulting, what that caller said. Um, Simone Biles took en enormous courage to do what she, she is doing. And for someone to say that she let her team or her country down, that's very insulting as well. Um, it's very important as a, a therapist and as a human to be compassionate, put yourself in another person's shoes, 
not judge. Um, but one last thing. I know I'm talking. No, no, no. no. You keep person. you keep talking. This is an important call. Yeah, the person who had a uh, a relative who was a police officer. You know, I respect the way he grieved. If he chooses not to ever discuss it, that's his choice. Um, so it's just very important. Um, trauma, like grief, it is grief because you're grieving the loss of innocence, the loss of you know virginity if you were abused, the loss of everything, the loss of safety for those police officers, the loss of confidence, and you know the you know the respect, the disrespect that they had that day. They lost a lot, so it's. Trauma uh, and grief are pretty much the same. Um, there's no right or way, wrong way. There's no timeline. Um, so people just really, I just wish people would be very respectful of other people's trauma and not to blame the victim. Oh, my goodness. Right. Not blaming the victim. <laughs> I, you know, and, and Chris, one reason I played the clip uh, from those two guys, I mean, one of the th- we have this way in which we sort of valorize physical behavior in this country, you know, whether it's a gymnastic or gymnasts or somebody, you know, some big, strong police officer holding rioters at bay. Um, But we don't don't tend to valorize this other part of it. And so have those two guys talk about the fact that they needed help, that they had emotional, psychological trauma. I don't know. I, 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 people who listen to this show, they know I'm going through uh, a couple of pretty major crises uh, in, in my life right now. And so I went and I got, I got help. I'm see, I see a psychotherapist uh, every week. I do it on, you know, online, which is somehow less satisfying, but still, I, I can guarantee you, I wouldn't be on this show today if I hadn't and gone, and gone and gotten help. Like most people, and I'm sure you could bear this out, like most people actually waited too long. You know, most of us uh, think we're burned out or think we're in crisis or, or think we can't go on. And then it's like another two or three months before we actually do anything about it. Uh, but the idea that these guys would at least, you know, would say that, would say that in a public forum, I needed help to get over this. Uh, I needed to go get help. And I think Biles and Michael Phelps and Naomi Osaka, these athletes who are also in their way, bringing the same kind of attention, saying, look, you know, mental health and and the lack of um, mental health, uh, these are realities and the realities that affect all kinds of people. Uh, it, It isn't any one kind of person. This is like a really good moment. I mean, it's it's a bad set of things that have led to a possibly good and helpful moment. So, uh, you know, I mean, maybe that's a good place to end the show today. And anyway, we have to end it anyway. So here we go. And so was the economy In 50 years When I'm frail, barely on my feet Will you be kind of you? Like you promised.